If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, December 30th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was kind of shocked to see that Anthony Fauci, when it came to estimates of herd immunity, had been just winging it, pretty much making it up. Or as he told CNN's State of the Union, it shifted. It's a guesstimate. I gave a range. A guesstimate, which is a guess, but quite crucially, with the word estimate appended to guess. You know, this makes it all scientific-tional. I get what he was doing or how he had an estimate based on measles. Okay, measles we know about, COVID-19 we don't. And then you modify the estimate based on new stuff that you learn. But once you get in deep with the estimate game or the guesstimate game, it could quickly turn into an addiction. The reason I first started saying 7075, I brought it up to 85. That's not a big leap to go mm-hmm. from 75 to 85. Right, but you didn't go from 75 to 85. As you said right then, you went from 70 to 75, and then to 85, and now he's at about 90. We're going to need 90% immunity to achieve herd immunity. I mean, by this logic that every number is kind of close to a number that's a little bit less than it, you just start at 20%, which is really just a younger cousin of 30%, but then say, 30 is the new 40, and by 40, it's almost half. In other words, 60, almost half. And if you're at 60, you're talking two-thirds. Let's round up 70. 70 goes to 80, and here we are today. None of this is too inspiring. I get it. I get it. I get it. When the science is hard and the developments are fast, the numbers aren't hard and fast. But it really did make me question the estimates for the next time. Doesn't he realize that he's laying the groundwork for next time? Because there is going to be a next time. It might not be under the stewardship of Anthony Fauci. It definitely won't be under the guidance of Deborah Birx, who will be winterized under the Biden administration. But you, or at least I would like a little more expertise from my public health experts and a little less public relations. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Like a jilted lover in a Michael Douglas movie, the Russians have been steadily bent on revenge from those they deem to have betrayed them. Or, forget betrayed, just tried to expose them. Viktor Navalny, the dissident-slash-politician, has just announced to the world that he was almost killed by a pair of poisoned underwear. Meundies. When the former Russian intelligence agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were seemingly poisoned in March 2018 on British soil, it called for a forceful international response. Gina Haspel, director of the CIA, was reportedly finding it hard to rouse President Trump to take action. So she cited an unusual source. Because according to the New York Times, the president had some sympathy for Russia, how they were seeking revenge against someone that they viewed as a traitor. Disloyalty must be punished, after all, according to this mindset. And then Haspel showed the president some pictures. They were, according to the New York Times, of ducks and children. Ducks. Russian television RT covered it this way. Images of dead ducks and sick children were apparently enough to make Donald Trump expel Russian diplomats from the U.S. last year. I can't exactly figure out the RT angle. They are, you know, Russian state TV, westward facing. I do know that the Chiron on the screen said ducking responsibility. But who was ducking responsibility? Trump? Haspel? Skirpel? I don't know. Just a pun. Got to take the pun when it's there. 
The White House denied that it was the case that the president was moved by pictures of dead ducks. And the county health office of Wiltshire, England, went further, stating, quote, no wildlife were impacted by the incident and no children were exposed or became ill as a result of either incident. The Skirples lived. One innocent Brit did die as a result of handling what was believed to be perfume, but turned out to be a lethal nerve agent, which President Trump eventually took action against after he was shown pictures of the ducks. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, we revisit a theme we took up yesterday, the idea of the worst year ever. Look, 2020, it's not good. It's bad. Yesterday, though, James Fallows argued that within many of our lifetimes, there was even a more destabilizing, tragedy-filled year. But today we go further back, much further back to 536, the year 536, as volcanic ash filled the sky, hunger and pestilence soon followed. Historian and archaeologist Michael McCormick is here to fill us in on a year which makes the current one seem like if not a walk in the park, at least not a year in the dark. So it's very easy, it's very tempting to say 2020, worst year ever, especially since we are living through it, or for some of us, barely. But when historians are asked what was the worst year ever, there are so many ways to think about this. Usually it depends on that particular historian's area of study. They will point to maybe the worst year in their purview. So why not ask someone who has studied thousands of years so Michael McCormick is an historian and archaeologist. He is the Francis Golette Professor of Medieval History at Harvard. And does he have a year for us? It's pretty persuasive. Thanks for coming on, Professor McCormick. That's great to be here. Thank you, Mike. So 536 was the year. If you and I were around and chatting during 536, well, what might we be unhappy about? Well, if we were Romans and were early in 536 before March, we'd be pretty happy. The Roman Empire was roaring back. They were reconquering the provinces from the barbarians who had taken Africa from them. And they and Italy uh, was going very well. Spain was in the uh, target sites. Um, a big revolt had been suppressed in, in the imperial capital of New Rome, Constantinople, modern Istanbul. They were building the biggest building in the world until the 20th century, the Hagia Sophia, 16 stories tall. So things were looking really good in, in January of 536, February. But then in March, something really bad happened. The sun went out. Yeah, that could, that could be bad. I could see yeah, that being a bad thing. Kind of a bummer, kind of a bummer. And the, 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 the bad part was that it started in March. And then according to different uh, witnesses, it lasted between 12 and 18 months without regular sunshine, with the sun being rather like the moon. Um, so that was uh, very bad because it made for a very chilly summer, and it also made for very bad harvests. And the consequence of this was uh, a uh, food shortages. Uh, we know uh, from written sources that are, are rare in the period, but rich when they survive. The surviving ones are rich, but they're very unevenly preserved. From Ireland all the way to Persia, um, there were uh, food shortages. There's even evidence that they reached China, and indeed they reached famine proportions in many areas. Um, the, they lost the uh, harvest that had been planted in the fall of 535. 
Um, and because of the bad weather through the summer of uh, 536, they lost a summer harvest. So the Roman Empire was capable of dealing with one year of famine. Two was, was really pushing the envelope. So things got bad. There was a lot of uh, suffering and, and unrest. We can see the Roman army had just landed in Italy to reconquer it from the Ostrogoths. And Sicily had fallen in a flash. And they crossed over onto the mainland. They were moving up towards Rome. Progress, progress, progress. And then suddenly they bogged down in five. 36 and the war goes on for 20 more years. So um, you can see that kind of uh, an impact. But the uh, crazy thing is that 536 was the beginning. It got worse. Yeah. So um, the I've read or I read in your um, reporting on this that in Ireland, there was no bread for four years starting in that, 536. That's what the chronicles say. Oh my gosh. And then at the end of this, it wasn't really an end because the bubonic plague hits. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, in the in late 541, plague, uh, which was a disease that had broken out occasionally in small epidemics around the Mediterranean under the Roman Empire, suddenly plague exploded out of the Egyptian delta. Uh, out of a place called Pelusium, uh, Farama, Al-Farama today. It was the second port of ancient Egypt after Alexandria. And from there, it spread to the capital, Constantinople, and through shipping around the entire Roman Empire. And uh, that was a pretty bad deal. Uh, we're, we're, we're having a heck of a time with the current pandemic, which has gone on for um, pushing a year now. Uh, and uh, it has a, I don't know what the case fatality for COVID-19 is, but it's um, it's, uh, it's certainly um, it, it below 10%, well below 10%. The case fatality for bubonic plague is uh, between 40 and 60% if untreated. Now, if you remember that since 536, there had been food shortages, it becomes clear that the population was pretty weak. Uh, there would have been a lot of fragility in the population when the uh, pandemic uh, first hit. And then the real bad news is that the pandemic uh, was quite severe. Uh, it appears from the written sources. There's differences of opinion on that. But to, in my mind, the written sources are quite clear. And the mounting biomolecular evidence from ancient DNA uh, is uh, telling the same story. Uh, but the outbreaks of plague that started in 541-542 continued uh, coming back every few years until 750 for 200 years. So every 8, 10, 12 years, there'd be another epidemic of plague. We don't know that the subsequent epidemics of plague were all as bad as the first one, but that will be determined as we go forward using these amazing new tools from science. Yeah. So how do we know this? Tell me about the ways that you pinpoint not just the year 1500 years ago, but the season that uh, some of these volcanic eruptions hit. So this is a great story, Mike, because um, there, there are a number of ancient witnesses who describe this in the written sources, like eyewitnesses who were there and who saw and described it. But to tell you the truth, historians paid almost no attention to it. You know, ah, the sun goes out, so what? And uh, it was a journalist uh, by the name of David Keyes, who teamed up with a dendroecologist uh, in um, Northern Ireland, Michael Bailey, Mike Bailey. And uh, they began investigating and found some evidence in Irish tree rings that something really odd happened in 536. And so those two developed arguments, um, starting with a journalistic exploration that historians and archaeologists weren't paying much attention to, that 536 was a really bad year. And uh, 
it was they who got the historians, including Mike McCormick, who didn't pay too much attention to this, um, focused on it. And as we dug more deeply into the written sources, we could see that something bad was going on. Uh, the problem with the written sources is you always wonder, is this an exception? Is this the rule? We're talking about the Roman Empire. It's not huge amounts of sources that survive. So what has really been the game changer on this has been the scientific revolution that we're living through in our own time that allows us to use scientific methods to discover things about the past that are not well documented or not documented at all or are ambiguous in the scant written sources that survive from antiquity. And in this case, ice core showed in 2015, there was debate. Okay, there's a this huge uh, aerosol that envelops the, the globe and blocks the sun, blocks solar radiation. What caused it? Was it like some giant asteroid that hit the earth and shot uh, ocean or dust or water up into the uh, up into the atmosphere and blocked the solar radiation because the sun's the main source of heat on the earth? Uh, or was it a giant volcanic eruption? And we didn't know, and different opinions were out there. But a study in 2015 of uh, polar ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica found uh, unambiguous evidence of gigantic volcanic eruptions, not just in 536, but in 540 and 547. So um, that was the beginning of, of knowing what the cause was. And then that begins us to look for the volcano to try and identify the volcano. In 2018, our team, the Historical Ice Core Project that the Science of the Human Past at Harvard has been doing with our wonderful friends and colleagues at the Climate Change Institute of the University of Maine, teamed together and got wonderful funding from the Arcadia Fund in London to put together a consortium with our European friends to collect an ice core in the Swiss Alps. And there the ice is so thin that the technology that had been available up until we got this ice core in 2013 was not good enough to be able to see individual years because they're tiny, 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 very thin. Uh, but uh, my friend Majewski, Paul Majewski at the Climate Change Institute, his lab has invented this really cool laser ablation technology that allows us to take tiny, tiny, tiny uh, uh, measurements, 120 microns, uh, micrometers of, uh, of ice and zap it into a mass spectrometer and to actually see year by year seasonal depositions in an ice core 1500 years ago and we were working on something completely unrelated the production of silver in the uh, early medieval kingdom of France, tracking it from lead pollution that we were discovering in our ice core, when our wonderful colleague at Ch the Climate Change Institute, Andrei Kurbatov, was working with, uh, on the basis of work that was also done by an undergraduate at Harvard uh, in his summers working on uh, volcanic shirts, tephra, in our ice core, Andre was able to identify shirts from the eruption of 536. And he studied the chemical profile and it looks like that chemical profile is from Iceland. So we have our first concrete evidence of where the volcano was that uh, went off in 536 that wrecked all this hot ha havoc. And that's really cool because over time, that's going to allow us to reconstruct the the circulation of the atmosphere when that volcano went off and as it kept exploding and map it spread around the globe as uh, colleagues and scientists and archaeologists and geologists collect samples of the tephra of the volcanic ash that it will have deposited around the globe. So we're making great progress on that. So let me ask you, as someone who is so knowledgeable about the past and yet lives in the present, do you have any, have you developed any, I was going to say rule of thumb, but I think it 
is more like philosophy or habits of mind about comparing the two. Because I could imagine it's easy to fall into one of a couple of traps, either saying, oh, people now don't know how good they have it, or always finding the resonances. It's just like before, we've learned nothing. So it must come up either consciously or subconsciously all the time. How have you developed a navigation around that natural temptation? Mike, that's a really astute question, and it, it uh, it's something that happens on multiple levels. I often tease my my students uh, uh, at Harvard in my big undergraduate classes that uh, I praise them on how smart they were to be born in the 20th or 21st century uh, instead of being born in the 6th century and having to deal with the Justinianic pandemic in 536. And for a moment, some of them take me seriously until they realize that they didn't choose. They just happen to be born now, and we're lucky that we are uh, compared to the past. And that the, the, the first, the starting point of all this is that we have to realize that human beings in the past were every bit as smart, as good, as bad, as hardworking, as lazy, as successful, as uh, as conflicted as we are today. But they had a different toolkit, and they dealt with it the best they could. The second thing to know is that whether we like it or not, you and I are embedded in the past. And the past is embedded in us. All those people who died in that plague in 536 did not have offspring. And they did not contribute to you and me genetically. So there's this huge changing uh, uh, change of course that we haven't even thought about uh, until now. That happened with great pandemics in the past when good people for no good reason died. Uh, and uh, simply were taken out of the uh, reproductive pool for the future. People want to get lessons from the past. They think that because something happened in the past, it's going to happen again in the future. But professional historians uh, studying all these things see that every event is so complicated. There's so many contributing factors to it. I mean, you just think, why are you on the on the radio right now doing this? What are all the steps that came to put you in this position and hook you up talking with me? Hundreds and hundreds of causes, distant and proximate, same in the past. But what is really true of the past, we can't escape the past. It's in us. It's genetically in us. It's physically in us. We bear in us the pollution that we have experienced our whole lives and that our ancestors experienced. And we are embedded in the past and the past is embedded in us and we can't escape it. We need to know about it. We need to understand it. Again, the past doesn't prove it's going to happen, but it shows us the range of possibilities. And by living intensely and thoughtfully in our own time, we're constantly getting new questions for the past because, you know, when I was in graduate school, no one was going to study the environmental history of the Roman Empire. There was no point in studying the diseases of the Roman Empire because there were so few texts. You couldn't really tell what caused this illness, what caused that uh, s- series of symptoms. The same with with temperature change or uh, precipitation change um, or seasonal change. These are all things that were beyond our vision in, in the 1980s and 1990s. Now science has delivered these amazing tools, ice cores, tree rings, cave deposits for our ancient environments and for ancient diseases, ancient DNA, and for ancient human beings. Human DNA that's a, that has shown us, as we did not know when I was in graduate school, that we all come from Africa and that we've, we have migrated out of Africa and back into Africa now it looks like some t- uh, once or twice. And we're beginning to piece together this amazing story of resilience and suffering and achievement of our ancestors that is very, very moving. 
So what I wanted to ask you about that, about studying the climate changes of the past. Now we are living through a period of climate change, and of course it will have dire consequences. But do you say, how do you contextualize that knowing what you know? Do you say something like humans have always been able to adjust? Do you say, you know, compare it to what was going on 1,500 years ago, it's not even that great? Or do you learn a different lesson about how this is uh, one of the rare times when maybe we could do something about it? because we have forewarning. Well, your last point is essential. Uh, maybe we can do something about it because we have forewarning and we have these powerful uh, instruments of science and education that the, the globe, not just the United States and Europe, but the globe has built up over generations. So we, can in, we, we have a small chance of inventing ways of saving ourselves in terms of how does this compare to the past? So I do work on climate change under the Roman Empire, and um, I, the latest results are indicating a very sobering message, and that is that the natural spectrum of variation in climate was actually bigger than we have thought in the past, which means that the anthropogenic changes to uh, the climate, the global climate, which are indubitable and which are accelerating, actually could be amplified by natural variation beyond where we are so that it could actually get much worse, much faster than anticipated. That's a possibility that comes to us from the study of historical climates in the past through paleoclimate science and the collaboration of historians and paleoclimate archaeologists and paleoclimate climate scientists. So in a way, the message is actually worse, very sobering that as bad as it is, it could actually get even worse than the worst uh, projected uh, estimates if um, we were to move into a natural variation uh, in climate that would ex exacerbate the present uh, human-induced uh, climate change. Michael McCormick is the Francis Gallet Professor of Medieval History at Harvard University. He nominates 536 as the worst year. Mm, good case. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Perspective is sometimes just a wise-sounding word for believing in what you always believed in anyway. If I want to diminish suffering, I could evoke perspective. Think about how bad others have it. But if I want to heighten or emphasize suffering, I could do the same thing. Do you realize just how unprecedentedly bad these times are? And I could heighten or diminish happiness by evoking perspective, comparing ourselves to other people or other places or our own people and places at other times in the past. Bethany Mandel, the writer and kind of conservative provocatress, took to Twitter a couple of days ago to write of the year 2020. Have most people who spend their time online complaining about 2020 actually had a bad year, lost a job or a loved one? Most folks I see basically missed out on a vacation. Complaining about 2020 has become a sport and the constant negativity is a spiral and people who wallow in their imagined misery. It is bad for your mental health to spend this much time convincing yourself that your life is miserable. She thought she was sharing her perspective about having perspective when it comes to the travails of 2020. She got the history's greatest monster treatment from the masses who took to Twitter 
to tell her from their perspective that she was being callous and dismissive. Now, we know that perspective taking this is probably a phrase you've heard lately. Perspective taking. That's a good thing. It means putting yourself in someone else's mindset. But perspective having that's just a dime a dozen. That's just your regular old opinion, isn't it? Perspective is the only quality for which the taking is an additive, but the having doesn't change much. You know, there is a softer way to peddle that Bethany Mandel sentiment. Softer ways to peddle things, not why Twitter was invented. But it would start with the acknowledgement of others' pain. You would make the point not to minimize their loss, but then you would cautiously offer something like, but you know, the constant thrum of supposed catastrophe in the background of lives that are stressed, saddened, or inconvenienced might not be the best way to approach the reality of our circumstances. Now, Bethany Mandel might not be the right person to make such an argument, but without the hard-to-get-past tone, it's not much different than the celebrated sentiment, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm? London was bombed for like two straight months, every night, some days. Carry on, 40,000 were killed, hundreds of thousands injured, millions homeless. All right, that's one perspective. From the perspective of the intended audience, Brits in 1939, it was a wise sentiment. From the perspective of an American today, it might seem, I don't know, unrealistic, impossible. Once again, the government gaslighting us. I've been thinking of what perspective is the proper perspective of the idea of 2020 being the worst year ever. Some of that sentiment's hyperbole. But it is the worst year in a lot of people's lives. Can't argue with that. And so what? Once, we would just preach stiff upper lips. Today, we acknowledge, emphasize self-care. Stiff upper lips could lead to denial. Self-care can slip into self-indulgence. That's why I asked Jim Fallows yesterday to compare 1968 to 2020. And when I asked Mike McCormick to do the same for 536, I was interested in not just the facts of each year and each comparison, but how to think how they thought of each comparison. I've been interested in this a long time. In, I think, the first year of The Gist, I did a segment comparing the life of an average American today, or then, to a Roman emperor, literally a Roman emperor. My guest was the UCLA professor, Ronald Meller. He was talking about the Emperor Augustus, who served from the ages of about 27 to 77. For much of that time, Augustus was in poor health, and it was a suffering that couldn't be alleviated by the medicine of the day. Here's Professor Meller's perspective. When we think about, you know, our guys who were there for four years trying to keep the show on the road, um, think about someone who's doing it for 50 years, uh, you know, with rivals and with uh, people uh, wanting to fight a civil war and take power. It was extremely stressful. Is 77 old for an emperor? 77 is very old. The average, the Romans called you a senex, an old man. You know, senator comes from that, mm -hmm. when you were 45. Lifespans were shorter, even for emperors. Life was hard, even for emperors. Diseases were deadlier. Threats were more potent. Family was more likely to become a source of treachery. So not only was the year 536 worse than the year 2020, the average citizen between the years, I don't know, 2000 BC to at least 1970, were worse off than the average citizen of 2020. Even the best-led lives of all those years ago were in many ways worse than the average life today. But what do you do with that? Do you just stiffen your lip? That could lead you to despair, thinking, ah, I shouldn't complain. So many people have it worse. You say you shouldn't complain until that breaks you. 
But I do think I've always thought with so many things that there is a usefulness in knowledge. So I always like to know about the facts of yesteryear, the realities of human existence, what we've all been through. Now, of course, if I am cut and bleeding today, then I'm cut and bleeding today. It doesn't really take my pain away to know that even a lesser cut a thousand years ago was more likely to become a deadly infection. Also, I've learned, this is a big thing I've learned, I think I've come to learn it, that emotions are real and acknowledging that fact, it's one of the more useful bits of knowledge there is. So you could say, you know, seems pretty dark now, but let me tell you about 536. Instead, I will say, yes, things seem bleak in 2020 and they are bleak in 2020, but I know most of us can get through it because we literally descended from those who got through it and the it was times just as terrible and worse as the times today. After all, in the words of the Emperor Justinian, it is always darkest before the dawn or until a second Icelandic volcano goes kablooey. Sounds much more profound than the original Latin. And that's it for today's show that just was produced. And this, and I do mean was produced, past tense. This is the last program of 2020 produced by Shana Roth who nominates as an Annis Horribilis. 2005, Best Picture, Crash. Hella Back Girl, not stop playing on the radio. Also, Dumbledore died. Just producer Margaret Kelly nominates the worst year ever, one. No one even knew it was one. Some baby born next to a donkey ruined everyone's checks. Plus, if you were born in one, all your older siblings were born in negative numbers. So how old are they really? And how do you buy gifts for them? Also, it takes forever to get to one on all the drop-down menus. Not sure that was a huge problem back in one, but I think about it today. I say screw one. If you graduated from high school in one, then what, you're the class of one? So you're saying you're a class by yourself? No, not a class, no, one. No one? One is just the worst. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She doesn't know the worst year ever, but for movie plots, thinks that between like 1989 and 1997, the best years ever because answering machines allowed you to easily lay out exposition, but there was not yet widespread adaption of cell phones, which still allowed for situations where travelers were trapped and stranded with nothing but their wits to stave off demise. The gist. They say hindsight is 2020. I can't wait for that to be literally true. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.